listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. Welcome to the reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Sunday, March 12th, being read on Monday, March 13th. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Hafer Foundation. We're Lois and Myra. And here's our first story. Faith in the Future. Dubuque Archdiocese Considers Plans for its parishes. Laura Dole Hyde has been a devout Catholic throughout her life, reverently attending Mass weekly. Her church, St. Columkill Catholic Church in Dubuque, serves as both the anchor of her faith and a place of community together with her fellow Catholics. Like her fellow parishioners, the Dubuque resident often thinks about the future of her church. She lived in town when the Archdiocese of Dubuque closed St. Mary's Catholic Church in Dubuque in 2010. For her and many area Catholics, the eventual closure of other parishes seems almost imminent. I was visiting Spain and I saw these beautiful churches that were closed for good, Dolhide said. No matter where you go, there is something that is happening. This is something that is happening. The future viability of the area's Catholic churches isn't just on the minds of parishioners. For several years, leaders of Archdiocese of Dubuque have been weighing the future of their 165 parishes as the number of available priests declines and weekly mass attendance dwindles. The Archdiocese now is developing a new strategy that will lay the groundwork for determining which churches remain open and which eventually will close or merge. It also aims to head off future closures, though, by helping churches set goals to increase their vitality so they can continue their missions. It is through this new strategy that the Dubuque Archdiocese hopes to secure the future of the Catholic Church locally. We have put parishes on notice by having these strong conversations about vitality and goal setting, said Kim Hermson, Director of Pastoral Planning and Leadership Development at the Chicago Archdiocese. We want them to know that we may have to make some difficult decisions moving forward. Public Religion Research Institute in 2020 found that 23% of Dubuque, Jackson, and Delaware County residents identified as religiously unaffiliated. The percentage of people who identified as religiously unaffiliated was slightly lower in Clayton County at 19%. A decline in churchgoers doesn't just mean fewer pews filled. Parishioners are the lifeblood of a parish, Hermson said, providing churches with stronger community engagement and financial stability. Parishes are funded by the people that participate in their ministries, so looking at revenues versus expenses is absolutely key, she said. The Archdiocese also faces a growing shortage of priests to lead its churches. A 2023 report by Vocation Ministry found the number of active religious priests in the U.S. declined by 14% from 2014 to 2021. 
In the Dubuque Archdiocese, there are 73 active priests. Over the next five years, 12 of them will be eligible for retirement, and only eight new priests are expected to be ordained. That's assuming all eight people in the seminary actually go all the way through, Hermson said. We also have to consider if a current priest falls ill. So far, the Archdiocese has bolstered its number of priests by finding them internationally, with 11 such priests currently serving in the Archdiocese. However, Hermson said, relying on bringing in priests from outside the country is not a long-term solution for the shortage. With their visas, they can typically only be here for three to five years, she said. They are part of the stopgap right now. The shrinking number of active Catholics and declining number of priests has led the Dubuque Archdiocese to cluster some of its parishes into larger pastorates, merge multiple churches into single parishes, and close some churches entirely. The Reverend John Hagen drives 2,100 miles every month traveling to and from the five parishes that make up the Emmaus Pastorate, which encompasses Colesburg, Edgewood, Elkader, Strawberry Point, and Volga. On top of driving between these communities, Hagen has his plate full, conducting four masses per week, holding funeral services, visiting parishioners, and serving on multiple parish councils. He works six days a week and is given every Monday off, though he admitted that even those days often are spent doing some work. Hagen is one of five priests in the Dubuque Archdiocese who serves as pastor for five parishes. As the number of priests has declined, the Archdiocese has moved to consolidate rural churches into larger pastorates, in which single priests are responsible for managing and offering Mass to multiple parishes. Some of these pastorates, such as Hagen's, have consolidated to the point that not all of them can hold Mass every weekend, since Catholic law only allows priests to conduct Mass four times per weekend. Weekend Mass in Hagen's pastorate is held on a rotating schedule, with one church missing out uh, each week. While the consolidation of parishes into larger pastorates offers a solution to keep those churches operating, Hagen said there are even greater strains on parishes when a priest's time and attention is spread over many of them, particularly when it comes to developing relationships in those parishes to foster strong communities of faith. I think at a certain point there is diminishing returns, Hagen said. Pastoring is about relationships, and it's hard to do that when you have many parishes. A plan for vitality. In response to these trends, the Dubuque Archdiocese in February developed a strategy to help it better determine which parishes are succeeding and why. A recently distributed internal document issued by Archbishop Michael Jekylls outlines four new initiatives that will be used to measure parish vitality. First, the Archdiocese annually will collect and track a variety of data for each parish, such as financial stability, parish member deaths and baptisms. Each parish also will be required to submit one to three goals related to parish vitality by the end of the summer that priests and parishioners will pursue over the next year. The Archdiocese will form a permanent pastoral planning committee in the fall 
that will make recommendations to the Archbishop on opening, clustering, merging, or closing parishes. Parishes in need, in need of individualized assistance or who are considering a major capital project first will need to conduct a vitality review looking at their demographics, participation, and finances. Hermson said no parishes in the archdiocese currently are being considered for closure. Jekyll stresses the same message in his letter detailing the plan, but he also states that declining parishes can stay can't stay open forever. It can't be said enough that there are no list of parishes on the proverbial chopping block, nor is there an Episcopal desire to merge parishes, Jacobs stated. A parish has to have enough people to constitute a community, people who are also willing to take responsibility for the roles of the parish ministries between one Sunday and the next, serving the poor, learning and teaching the gospel, and gathering people for daily prayer and Sunday Mass, and who will contribute enough money to pay the bills. Jekylls declined a request for an interview uh, by the Telegraph Herald. For some church parishioners, though, the future of their parish feels less certain. Dolhide said she fears the declining number of young people attending church. Dennis and Rosie Gassman, parishioners at St. Anthony Catholic Church in Dubuque, feel the shrinking number of priests eventually will lead to future church closures. I think the day will come when there are fewer churches, Dennis Gassman said. Fewer priests is the main reason, but I think it's the combination of a lot of stuff. Hermson said the challenge facing the Dubuque Archdiocese also are experienced by Catholic churches throughout the United States, and they are problems without easy solutions. For now, though, Dubuque Archdiocesan leaders hope that by calling on their parishioners to act now, they may avoid parish mergers or closures in the future. We can't keep doing things the way we have done them, Hermson said. Casinos expect slam dunk from March Madness. Week one of the NCAA basketball tournament is among the busiest times of the year for sports wagering. Area experts hope March Madness will be a slam dunk for local sports betting operations as in-person and online wagering continues to bring in millions. The annual NCAA basketball tournament tips off Tuesday with games stretching for nearly three weeks. Like many other major sporting events, the tournament is expected to draw both new and experienced sports bettors. Big events like March Madness and the Super Bowl, they bring in new faces of those people who are interested in betting for the first time, said Brian Joseph, regional sportsbook manager for FanDuel, which operates the sportsbook in Dubuque's Diamond Joe Casino. We see about four times as many bets the first week of March Madness than we do on any other normal weekend. More than $362 million has been wagered so far in the fiscal year that started in July through the sportsbook affiliated with Dubuque's two casinos, according to records maintained by the Iowa Racing and Gaming Commission, correlating to more than $39 million in revenue. However, the impact of those totals can be difficult to pin down 
and can vary over time. Much of the wagered money is returned to winning players, meaning most casinos don't rely on sports betting for the lion's share of their profits. Sports wagering is a small part of the overall casino portfolio in terms of the tax revenue that is collected for the state, said Racing and Gaming Commission Administrator Brian Oharilko. It's an added amenity for most casinos. Area residents interested in sports betting have a few options. They can go to either of Dubuque's casinos and place bets in person, or they can register online to place bets from their phone or computer. All online sports betting companies must partner with a brick-and-mortar Iowa casino to legally operate their websites in the state. Online companies can also partner with casinos to create in-person sports books like the FanDuel location at Diamond Joe. A share of in-person and online revenue then is shared with the affiliated casino. Area Black Leaders Discuss School to Prison Pipeline by Joshua Irvine. Black academics, school and justice officials, and community leaders gathered Friday in Dubuque to discuss what they refer to as the school to prison pipeline relating their personal and professional experience with a system that seems to single out black students. This is a problem for all of us to take a look at, said Claudette Carter Thomas, a retired probation officer and parent. Kids are suffering. Kids are being pushed out of schools. Kids are being treated a way others aren't. Hosted by the University of Dubuque, the panel accompanied a traveling exhibit, Suspended Systemic Oppression in Our Schools, developed by the African American Museum of Iowa. The exhibit examines the presence of law enforcement in Iowa schools since the 1960s and the increasingly punitive treatment of students, policies that have disproportionately affected black children. Data from Dubuque Community Schools show the school district is no exception. Black and low-income students and students with disabilities were disproportionately represented in suspensions and expulsions according to 2021, uh, 2020-2021 school data from the Iowa Report Card. The Telegraph Herald previously reported nearly half of all students arrested in Dubuque schools in the 2021-2022 school year were black despite making up about 10% of the student body. Director of Behavioral and Learning Supports Mimi Holsinger told the TH the district had strict criteria on suspending students, as did its school resource officers for making arrests. Multiple panelists shared the fear they'd felt as parents when their own children started getting into trouble, with Clark University social work professor Mary Gittow and Carter Thomas saying they both eventually made the decision to move their children to private Catholic schools. It was that anxiety of, I don't want my son to get in trouble every day, Gittow said. I didn't know what else to do. 
Retired Hempstead High School assistant principal Claudette Bees noted as the administrator charged with discipline, she was often the one calling parents. She said the school district had, with the collaboration of school resources officers, adopted a restorative justice practice in recent years that avoided charges being filed against students. Victor Anderson, a local juvenile court officer, said he felt Dubuque schools had relatively disciplined SROs. However, he said, I do believe there are times they are filing charges that that don't need to be charges. Joe Lomax, a retired chair of the University of Wisconsin-Platteville's Criminal Justice Department and a Beloit, Wisconsin police officer in the 1960s, argued part of the issue was a misunderstanding of how police officers operated. Officers, he said, were trained to enforce the law, not serve as social workers. They're not really set up to resolve a community issue or a family issue, Lomax said, so there's role confusion there. Person who makes a difference. Asbury Man offers support to abuse survivors through Center. Years into his volunteer work with Riverview Center, Tim Leonard sometimes frets about what to say to survivors of abuse. I'm always nervous when I get the call to respond, he said but I've found that my desire to be there for people and advocate on their behalf and provide some hope in a situation where there might not be much hope gives me the courage to get past myself. It really makes you fall back on your beliefs and that motivation to help others. Leonard has been volunteering at Riverview Center's Dubuque office since completing training four years ago. The nonprofit organization provides services to those who have suffered from domestic abuse and sexual violence in Iowa and Illinois. I've been very blessed in my life and am always looking for ways to serve and be a blessing to others, Leonard said. During his volunteer shifts, Leonard said he is on call to respond to a hospital when a case of abuse, primarily sexual abuse, has been reported. He said he shares information on resources available to survivors and makes sure the survivors know their rights that following the incident of abuse. My role is just to be there for the survivor, Leonard said. I have no other reason to be there than to support the survivor. I'm there as a person who's on their side and believes in them and tells them it's not their fault. Rachel Miller, Iowa Volunteer Coordinator with Riverview Center, said Leonard will be honored as Dubuque Volunteer of the Year at the organization's annual Evening of Light event on April 20th. Staff at the Dubuque office selected him for the honor. Tim is just so incredible to work with, Miller said. He's always so upbeat. He's always willing to go support someone in the ER. It does not matter what time it is. Miller added that Riverview Center volunteers play an integral part of the nonprofit's team. When it comes to sexual assault, that's the most underreported crime that we have, she said. Knowing so many survivors need assistance, our volunteers are available and ready to support individuals during a hard time and what can be a really dark time. It's so beneficial to providing a well-rounded services. 
Leonard stressed that the training that Riverview Center gives its volunteers inspired confidence in him during his volunteer work. He added that the nonprofit has many other volunteer opportunities for those who want to aid in Riverview Center's mission, but do not wish to work directly in hospitals with survivors. We're very blessed as a community to have Riverview Center, Leonard said. They really feel a need. Just showing up for people in their time of need is huge. Profile on Tim Leonard, age 38, lives in Asbury. Occupation Process Improvement Associate with Medline. Family, wife, Brooke, and four kids. Hobbies, reading, video games, and going out to eat. This is the opinion page, an editorial. Keep requirement to publish public notices in newspapers. Some members of the Iowa Senate do not think that public notices published in newspapers remain relevant and necessary. A bill filed in the newly formed Technology Committee just over a week ago moved through committee in two days and last week moved through the Ways and Means Committee in one day. Senate File 546 would result in removing a major component of government transparency. This legislation would require legal notices to be posted on a website controlled by the very government legal notices are designed to oversee, and notices would not be required to be published in a local newspaper. This is the wrong move today, tomorrow, and for the future. Government transparency is more important than ever. In truth, it is critical. While the Telegraph Herald and other Iowa newspapers have an economic interest in seeing that the public notice publishing requirement remains, the issue goes far beyond a few dollars. Maintaining the legal requirement to publish government actions and meetings in local newspapers is crucial for ensuring accountability and keeping the public informed of important information that affects people's lives. And, and it is the job of our local newspapers to serve as a check on government, not the government to check itself. The proposed savings under the guise of modernization would come at a very high cost to Iowa communities. While the bill does not prohibit local government bodies from publishing public notices in newspapers, it removes the current requirement for doing so. Removing the legal requirement would most certainly result in local governments discontinuing all public notice publications in their local newspapers. But the long-term costs that communities and citizens would pay far exceed the price paid by government bodies to publish legal notices in newspapers. We believe that requiring governmental bodies to, continuing pub to continue publishing legal notices in local newspapers is crucial for ensuring transparency, accountability, and accessibility 
in government decision-making. Newspapers, especially Iowa newspapers, remain a trusted source of information that is widely accessible and easily searchable. As a newspaper, we strongly urge Iowa's senators to vote no on this short-sighted bill, as should all Iowans. Other view. Sturden's First Act creates two educational systems in Iowa by Don Anderson Rasher. Rasher is an Iowa educator who has been part of several Iowa Department of Education site teams that visited school districts as part of the audit process required in the Iowa Code. The Students First Act, House File 68, is creating two educational systems in Iowa. Although this opinion piece does not discuss all the differences that need to be addressed, it should provide enough examples for the taxpayers in Iowa to request their legislatures to address them. First, public schools are required to accept every student who lives in their district and keep them enrolled in the district. This is currently not true for non-public schools. Here is a specific example. When I taught in a public high school, one of my students was recruited for an athletic scholarship. The student and his, her family made the decision to attend the private high school. After a theft incident on the team, the student was told that he, she could no longer attend the private high school and would need to re-enroll in the public school. The student first act states in section 710A, quote, this section shall not be construed to authorize the state or any political subdivision of the state to exercise authority over any non-public school or construed to require non-public schools to modify its academic standards for admission or educational program in order to receive payment from a parent or guardian using funds. The Student First Act does not require the non-public school to accept and continue to enroll any student. By not specifically addressing which students are accepted and retained in the non-public schools, the decision of school choice is taken away from the parents and given to the non-public schools, which is not what legislatures have stated is the primary purpose of the Student First Act. Secondly, there are state curriculum requirements that every public school district in Iowa must teach, such as state standards, career technical, bullying. In addition, there are other requirements in Iowa Code, including teacher certification for specific courses, professional development, and bullying instruction for staff and students. Every public school district is held accountable by the Iowa Department of Education for meeting these requirements. To meet these, districts are required to go through online audits and site visits from the Iowa Department of Education. Any public school district that does not meet all of these requirements is required to work with the State Department of Education to correct them. Again, Section 710 of the Student First Act does not require non-public schools to modify its academic standards for admission or educational programs. Why are there different requirements, expectations, and support and consequences for public and non-public schools if both are receiving taxpayer money? Third, the legislators have introduced House Study Bill 138 that would make any state required assessments optional for non-public students. However, every public school student would be re required to take all state required assessments. 
Are the state required assessments not valid or reliable for non-public school students? Do these assessments discriminate against non-public students? If the answer to each of these questions is yes, then why is the state requiring the use of assessments for any students that are not valid, reliable, and discriminate? These three examples show how current legislation is creating two educational systems in Iowa, one for public students and one for non-public students. Iowa has a strong educational system. Why make changes in requirements, expectations, support and consequences that have been successful and make these changes only for one group of students? It is the taxpayers of Iowa that are paying the bill at a cost of $341 million per year when fully implemented. I am asking my legislators to explain to me why two different educational systems are being created. I am also asking my legislators to make all requirements, expectations, support, and consequences the same for public and non-public students, creating one strong educational system, not two separate ones. I encourage all taxpayers in Iowa to reach out to their legislators and to do the same. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Your readers are Lois and Myra. If you have any comments on this or any IRIS program, please call 243-6833 or toll free at 877-404-4747. And don't forget, this and many other IRIS programs are available from our website at iowaradioreading.org. Now we return to the Telegraph Herald. Destination Iowa delivers two major grants to Dubuque. Two Dubuque projects were awarded a combined $11 million in grant money from the final round of Destination Iowa funding. Dubuque Museum of Art was awarded $8 million toward the construction of a new and expanded museum and a 10,000 square foot outdoor sculpture garden. The city of Dubuque was awarded $3 million for the addition of an open-air amphitheater on Chaplin Schmidt Island. Dubuque Mayor Brad Kavanaugh said he sees securing the grant money as dovetailing with the vision community leaders are trying to create. All these things go together, he said. What we're trying to do here is build a city that is going to be a true destination for people to want to live here and for people to want to come here and visit as tourists. Dubuque Museum of Art, he said, has reimagined its place within the community. The project is strongly tied to the opportunities defined by the city's master plan for arts and culture uh, and strengthening and expanding economic and community vitality, he said. Destination Iowa awards were granted to 46 projects, totaling $115 million that activated $480,265,783 in total investment. IEDA opened the Destination Iowa program in May 2022 with projects scored based on eligibility, completeness, and the project's ability to meet the program goal of creating transformational tourism uh, attractions. We now turn to the obituaries. James A. Rondeau. James A. Jim Rondeau, age 77 of Dubuque, 
passed away at 11.38 a.m. on Thursday, March 9th at Sunnycrest Manor. To honor Jim's life, family and friends are gathering today with services at Resurrection Church this morning. Burial will be at a later date following cremation in Mount Calvary Cemetery. Jim was born on March 10, 1945 in Westfield, Massachusetts, son of Edward and Helen Stevenson Rondeau. He graduated from high school and went on to honorably serve his country with the U.S. Air Force from 1964 to 68 as a weapons mechanic during the Vietnam War in Thailand and Japan. He was united in marriage to the love of his life, Sandra Lorenz, on July 24, 1965 in Dubuque. Sadly, she passed away after 50 years of marriage in 2016. Jim was also always a hard worker and devoted his career to working as an assistant manager at Stanley Home Products, the Dubuque Hacking Company for a short time, and later in the office of JMJ Screen Printing until his retirement. Jim's faith was an integral part of his daily life. He was a member of the Church of the Resurrection, the Power of Prayer, the Pilgrim Virgin Honor Guard, and he led the rosary every Tuesday at Sunnycrest. Jim was an avid pool player who ran the Midwest Independent Pool League for 20 years. He also enjoyed getting outside golfing and watching all the local high school plays at Dalzell Field. He was a diehard Cubs and Bears fan. His family was always his main focus, and he truly loved spending time with everyone. We'll be greatly missed, but we find comfort knowing that he was reunited with his beloved wife, Sandra, just in time to celebrate his birthday in heaven this year. Those left to cherish Jim's memory include his children, Chris Rondo Piasta and Tracy Kovar Dubuque, three granddaughters, his siblings, Leon Rondo, Diane Rondo, Jack Rondo, Joanne Van Natta Freeport, Karen DeCandy, and Richard Rondo. Jim was preceded in death by his parents, his loving wife Sandra, and two sisters, Donna Rondo and Judith Rondo. Helen Sheehy. Helen Till Sheehy, age 88, of Dubuque, Iowa, died March 7, 2023, at Unity Point Health Finley Hospital in Dubuque. She was born March 10, 1934, in Cascade, Iowa. She was one of ten siblings of the Till family. Helen was preceded in death by her mother, May Till, her father, John Till, her brothers, Paul Till, Carl Till, sisters, Irene Funky, Dola Stoll, Mary Lou Turner, Ruth Graham, Kay Peterchuk, and her husband, Keith Sheehy. Helen is survived by her siblings, Jean Till, and Elaine Schnorr. She is also survived by her six children, Sean Weber of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Moya Sheehy of Ottumwa, Iowa, Steve Julie Sheehy of Concord, Ohio, Lisa McFadden of Aurora, Colorado, Ben Olga Sheehy of Highlands Branch, Colorado, and Colleen Mike Lowe of Franklin, Tennessee. Helen is blessed with 15 grandchildren. Helen was a native Iowan with a large family. She and her husband Keith raised six children over a span of 15 years. She loved to garden, travel, and treasure hunt. Later in life, she earned an undergraduate degree at the University of Northern Iowa. Her ambition took her to Texas, 
where she worked for several oil and telecom companies throughout the 1980s. In Texas, she made lifelong friends with the Greenwald family and treasured that relationship throughout her life. She returned to Iowa for retirement and has enjoyed her life at the Diamond Senior Apartments in Dubuque. At Helen's request, her body will be donated to the University of Iowa for the advancement of science. At her request, no service will be held. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, Dubuque, Iowa, is assisting the family. Online condolences may be left at www.leonardfuneralhome.com. Elaine S. Weiss, Bellevue, Iowa. Elaine S. Weiss, 89, of Bellevue, died on Friday, March 10, 2023. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11 a.m. Friday, March 17th at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Church in Springbrook, where services will follow. Hackman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Bellevue is assisting the family. Richard G. Gross, East Dubuque, Illinois. Richard G. Gross, 60, of East Dubuque, died on Tuesday, March 7, 2023. Private services will be held. Tri-State Cremation Center of East Dubuque is assisting the family. Judith A. Glab. Judith Judy Ann Tharp Glab, 83, of Dubuque, passed away Friday, February 24th at Luther Manor Retirement Community in Dubuque. A private memorial will be planned at a later date in Dubuque. Judy was born September 13, 1939 in Dubuque to James Tharp and Alice McWilliams Tharp. She was a graduate of Dubuque Senior High School. She was a homemaker and worked for Stanley Home Products and then O'Connor Brooks and Company in Dubuque prior to retirement. She was a member of St. John's Lutheran Church and enjoyed volunteer work at the Open Closet and the Dubuque Symphony. Judy was a wonderful cook and seamstress. She is survived by her daughters, Lori Ann Patterson of Edmond, Oklahoma, and Lisa Marie Peterson of Littleton, Colorado, five grandchildren and one great-granddaughter. She is also survived by a brother, Johnny Tharp of Washington State. She was preceded in death by her parents, three brothers, and second husband, Jean Glab. Burial will be next to her grandparents, John and Anna McWilliams in McGregor. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home in Crematory is in charge of arrangements. Scott L. Estel. Scott Lynn Estel, 55, passed away unexpectedly on March 9, 2023, 2.30 p.m. at Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center. The massive Christian burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 15, 2023, at St. Joseph Catholic Church, Key West, with Monsignor Thomas Toll officiating. Burial will be at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Visitation will be from 3 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, March 14, 2023, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where a wake service will be at 245. Scott was born on June 10, 1967, in Dubuque, Iowa, the son of Danny Estel and Judy Norpel Radford. He graduated from Dubuque Senior High School, class of 1985. He attended NICC and earned a certificate in HVAC. He married his high school sweetheart and soulmate, Tammy Kinsella Estel, on July 29, 
1989 at St. Joseph the Worker Church in Dubuque. Scott worked for various heating and cooling companies, ran his own Estill residential maintenance business, and was currently employed at the University of Dubuque on the maintenance crew. He was a jack-of-all-trades and would never hesitate to lend a helping hand. Surviving are his wife, Tammy Kinsella Estel, his four children, Allison Michael Taylor, Kara Jessica Ryan, Ryan uh, Kara, his six grandchildren, his mother and stepfather, Judy Denny Radford, father-in-law, Jim Kinsella, Maggie, his three siblings, Dan, Sherry, Todd, Christina, and Kimberly. He was preceded in death by Danny Estel, father, David Estel, nephew, his mother-in-law, Dorothy Kinsella, his grandparents, Ken and Mary, Alice Norpel, and Lauren and Francis Estel. In lieu of flowers, please consider donating to research for the kids on the Make-A-Wish Foundation. The family would like to thank the cardiology staff at Mercy One, and especially Dr. Ramabhadran for his quick and compassionate care. Ellen M. Pop, Ellen M. Pop, 72, of Platteville, died Sunday, March 5th at St. Mary's Hospital in Madison. Funeral services will be Tuesday, March 14th at 6 p.m. at Melby Funeral Home and Crematory in Platteville. Father David Flanagan will officiate. Friends may call from Tuesday from 2 p.m. until time of the service. Ellen was born August 5, 1950, the daughter of Austin, Frosty, and Maud Bonnet Fitzgerald. After graduating from Southwestern High School, Ellen went on to receive a master's degree from the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. She married her favorite drummer, Larry Fizz Pop, on August 16, 1969, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Benton, Wisconsin. Ellen was a devoted teacher for the Galena School District during her 34-year career at the Galena Middle School. The number of lives positively influenced by Mrs. Pop are countless. Upon retirement, she loved spending time with her family, especially her eight grandchildren. Ellen would be the first to tell you that her life's greatest reward was being a grandma, and she found the most joy out of sleepovers, homework help, school programs, and sporting events. Ellen is survived by her husband, daughter Stephanie Kirkenbush and her children, son Brian Pop and his children, and sisters Kathy Wetter and Cindy Cruiser, and brother Richard Trewartha. She was preceded in death by her parents and a sister, Sandra Connorshield. Judy L. Knickerbocker, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. Judy L. Knickerbocker, 79, of Prairie du Chien, died on Thursday, March 9, 2023. Visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 18th at St. Gabriel's Catholic Church in Prairie du Chien, where a massive Christian burial will follow. Burial will take place in Evergreen Cemetery in Prairie du Chien. Garrity Funeral Home of Prairie du Chien is assisting the family. Robert L. Beckley, Bellevue, Iowa. Robert Bob L. Beckley, 89, of Bellevue, died on Friday, March 10, 2023. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, March 17th, and from 9 to 10 a.m. Saturday, March 18th, at Hackman Meyer Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Bellevue. 
Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday at St. Joseph's Catholic Church in Bellevue. Dennis M. O'Neill Dennis M. O'Neill, 76, of Muscatine, died on March 2nd. Denny was born January 3, 1947, in Dubuque, the second of 13 children to Jack and Dorothy Daly O'Neill. He joined the U.S. Navy at age 16, returned to Dubuque, and graduated from Wallard High School in 1967. He moved to Muscatine in 1970, attended St. Ambrose College, and earned a degree in history. He worked at Miller Furniture and Hone Industries in Muscatine, and with his wife Carol, owned and ran Stony Bar and Grill in Adelissa. An avid golfer, he was a regular at the West Liberty Country Club. He was a crossword enthusiast and a lifelong Hawkeyes and Cub fan. Denny was preceded in death by his parents, sister Peggy McCleary, daughter Deidre Jean, former wife Nancy DeMaria Frankenberg, and former brother-in-law Jeff Turnus. He will be deeply missed by his wife of 31 years, Carol Myers, her two children, three grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren, his son Dennis Patrick, his wife Maggie, and their girls, his siblings, Pat, Mary Treeweiler, Kathy Turnus, John, Dee Dee Lester, Jeannie Gonzalez, Vince, Sheila O'Neill, Teresa Heim, Sue Wynn, Ann O'Malley, special family member Greg Gothery, and many nieces and nephews. Denny will also be missed by his countless friends everywhere who affectionately refer to him as Stoney. There will be celebration of life gatherings in Muscatine and Dubuque this summer. Paul S. Kiefer. Paul S. Kiefer, 67, of Dubuque, died on Saturday, March 11, 2023. Arrangements are pending. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory of Dubuque is assisting the family. Betty J. Barth. Betty J. Barth, 86, of Dubuque, died on Friday, March 10, 2023. Visitation will be held from 1 to 3 p.m. Thursday, March 16, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where services will follow. Thomas J. Johnson. Thomas J. Tom Johnson, 64, of Dubuque, died on Sunday, March 5, 2023. A celebration of life will be held from 2 to 5 p.m. Saturday, March 18th, at the Dubuque Driving Range, Tri-State Cremation of East Dubuque, Illinois, is assisting the family. We now turn to agribusiness, farm and food. Too many parts of global food system operate on ragged edge of the law by Alan Gubert for the Telegraph Herald. Less than a month after the revelation that a Wisconsin-based contractor, Packer Sanitation Services Incorporated, had illegally hired at least 102 teenagers between ages 13 and 17 to clean some of the nation's most profitable industrial meat packing plants. One middle school child at the center of the story has, according to a March 3rd Washington Post account, watched her whole life unravel. First, she lost the job that burned and blistered her skin but paid her $19 per hour. Then the county judge sent her stepfather to jail for driving her to work each night, a violation of child labor laws. 
Her mother also faces jail time for securing the fake papers that got the child the job in the first place. Meanwhile, PSSI, the Keeler-based company that hired her and other children, has faced no criminal charges despite evidence that it failed to take basic steps to verify the age of its young employees. It did, however, quickly resolve any charges it faced by, quote, paying $1.5 million civil fine. That's the hidden in plain sight, all too common side of today's global food system. It operates on the ragged edge of the law. Most giant meat packers, despite their folksy corporate slogans and farm-friendly images, live on this edge. For example, since 2020, two of the biggest, Tyson Foods and JBS, have paid nearly $800 million to settle either federal or civil suits for alleged labor and market violations. These costly settlements, however, haven't hurt Big Meat's ability to secure lucrative government contracts. Since 2017, JBS has been awarded nearly $500 million from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, $400 million in meat contracts, and $90 million under the Trump administration's China trade aid. This latest revelation about underage illegal immigrant cleaning crews only spotlights meatpacking's worst-kept secret. Federal labor experts estimate that 73% of all U.S. AgBiz employees are immigrants and that half are undocumented or in the U.S. illegally. As such, it's likely that half, maybe more, of the food purchased by Americans is packed, picked, milked, slaughtered, boxed, and or delivered by undocumented and sometimes underage workers. That's one of the darker aspects of America's cheapest, safest food supply in the world equation. Some of the biggest, richest tag companies, ag companies anywhere, often rely on powerless illegal immigrant labor to do food's dirty work because, as AgBiz often claims, no American will do it. If true, the biggest part of the cure lies in the near total control Big Egg Biz holds over wages, benefits, harsh and or dangerous working conditions, harassment, bullying, poor training, favoritism, and other worksite shortfalls. This corrupt at its core system continues because we, both Egg Biz and everyday Americans, personally benefit from the abuse of desperate immigrants workers seeking to remain in the U.S. to somehow earn enough money to pay off debts that brought them and family members to the promised land, America. That's exactly what happened to one of the middle schoolers caught in the raid of the JBS Grand Island Beef Plant in Nebraska. Like most 13-year-olds, she wanted a job to buy nice clothes and an iPhone 13. So she lied about her age and was hired by JBS's cleaning contract to scour blood and beef fat from the slippery kill floor using high-pressure hoses, scalding water, and industrial foams and acids. PSSI, the contractor, JBS, the plant owner, and Blackstone, the $100 billion private equity fund that owns PSSI, all denied hiring underage workers. But clearly they do, as proven by the 102 underage teenagers found cleaning, slaughtering plants in eight states by the U.S. Department of Labor in raids last October. 
And so do we. Every time we buy a ribeye, pork loin, chicken breast, carrot, strawberry, head of lettuce, or too many to list other supermarket items that traveled a crooked, extra-legal path to our local meat case or grocery shelf. Which 13-year-old child, mother, grandfather, sister, or son was abused, underpaid, threatened, hurt, or fired so I could pay pennies less for that meat or vegetable? If our politicians won't fix this corrupt system, then our shame and courage should. Clark back in the Sweet 16 Women's College Basketball For the fourth consecutive season, the Clark University Women's Basketball Program will play in the Sweet 16 of the NAIA Tournament. After two wins by a combined 11 points in the opening two rounds of the 64-team field, the Pride will face NAIA Tournament veteran Lewis Clark at 8 p.m. Monday at the Tyson Evans Center in Sioux City, Iowa. The teams have combined for a 59-7 record this season. Clark will join two other Iowa schools, Sioux City's Briar Cliff University and Sioux Center's Dort University, as well as Heart of America Conference rival Central Methodist in the Sweet 16. Tri-State. For Dyersville celebration, everyone turns Irish. Dyersville, Iowa. The grass might be greener on the other side, but attendees of Dyersville St. Patrick's Day Parade on Saturday chose to embrace the hand they were dealt and shoved out, showed out in droves for the annual celebration. Despite chilly temperatures and a blustery wind, friend groups and families crowded First Avenue for the annual event. Floats, trucks, and tractors drove past, throwing out buckets of candy at the emerald-clad crowd. The parade was part of a day-long event organized by the Dyersville Area Chamber of Commerce in the Ancient Order of Hibernians, Dubuque County Division No. 1, that also included the 42nd Annual Gaelic Gallop 8-kilometer Shamrock Bike Ride and Mass at the Basilica of St. Francis Xavier. We're actually a mostly German town, but on this one day of the year, everyone turns Irish, said Dyersville Area Chamber of Commerce Executive Director Carla Thompson. There's a ton of community pride associated with this event. At the, as the parade kicked off, downtown Dyersville was flooded in a sea of orange and green as people poured out of the bars, restaurants, and other businesses where they'd sought shelter from the cold. Some visitors dressed as leprechauns with giant fake beards, while others opted for layered green tutus. A few toddlers were dressed as walking four-leaf clovers in costumes that dwarfed their tiny frames, but they didn't let it stop them from darting out to grab candy and other prizes thrown from the floats. Couple Diane Harris and Doug Christensen of Dubuque weren't taking any chances getting caught without something green. Having staked out their parade spot 30 minutes early, both sported large green hats that not only matched the spirit of the holiday, but also kept their ears warm. The parade is a good way to get out on a cloudy, chilly day and just enjoy each other's company. Even though neither of us is our Irish, Harris said, it's just something fun to do. 
Emily Knepper attended the event with her kids, Aura 3 and Everett 1. Having grown up in Dyersville, she expressed excitement to share the event with her little ones, who sat bundled up in their shared stroller. The St. Patrick's Day celebration is always a big deal for Dyersville, and it always brings a lot of people out, she said. I just wanted my kids to get to enjoy something that I got to enjoy growing up. Music and food specials continued at area bars and restaurants even after the parade ended, with festivities expected to last late into the evening. By early afternoon, some bars were so full the windows had begun to fog up. Dyersville Mayor Jeff Jake said after the parade that he was overjoyed with the turnout, having seen the crowd from his own spot in the parade procession. He said events like Saturdays offered the city an opportunity to show off to tourists while also giving residents a chance to have fun. I just enjoy seeing the smiles on everyone's faces and how our residents welcome all the visitors into the community, Jake said. It's a great way to showcase what Dyersville really has to offer. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for March 13, 2023. We're your readers, Lois and Myra. Support for this reading comes from the Dupaco R.W. Hafer Foundation. The Telegraph Herald can be heard each weekday at 2 p.m. All programs heard on IRIS are intended solely for the blind and print handicapped. If you have any questions or comments on this or any IRIS program, please call our office toll-free at 877-404-4747. Thanks for listening.